Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney and Eric. After Gareth Davis' rabid anti-beardite rant <laughs> last week, I have to ask, have you? did you go away and reconsider your life and become clean-shaven? Or, should we say it loud, you're bearded and you're proud. <laughs> Listen, I respect Gareth. Uh, when, when he gives tips on fashion, grooming, any sort of sartorial splendor, I listen. The man Hair has product, taste. Probably. Hair probably. Yeah, I mean, he has the finest head of hair in all of boxing media, bar none. Uh, but all that said, I remain bearded and proud because my wife likes the beard and she's the ah. boss of me. And if Gareth wants to appeal directly to her, have at it, Gareth, but you do need to talk to her. This sort of decision goes above my pay grade. Uh, how about you, Kieran? Uh, still saying it loud, bearded and proud? Absolutely. I actually haven't been clean-shaven since before I first went to the Antarctic in 1991. And I was I was a young'un then, and I wasn't sure whether I could actually grow a beard, so I figured I'd wait until I was on a ship in the Southern Ocean and virtually nobody would see what happened. But ever since then... You know, I, I've been bearded, and I have, I feel, a tradition to maintain. A long line of hirsute polar explorers mm. that I'm trying to maintain from my warm house in Vermont. <laughs> right, of course. Uh, you do you do vary up a bit uh, what, what, what exact type of facial hair. I've seen just the mustache and goatee versus yep. sometimes the full beard. Have you ever gone just the mustache, or uh, is that... Uh, oh, no. No. Seventies oh, no. porn, Kieran is not uh, is not an option. <laughs> that was yeah, that that was not that was not my most successful look. Okay. No, I've I've never done that. And actually, now that I'm no longer on camera, I've gone more of the full, except for when we do our Zoom calls. Mm -hmm. I um yeah, I I've gone much more of the the full beard now. That and the the fact that I no longer have to sort of trim it up to look nice and neat to be on camera, and right. also just the increasing laziness with which yes. I approach life. Yes, it's, I mean that's a factor. <laughs> As a relatively new beard wearer, like it's been you know two and a half years that I've been a beard guy. Prior to that, it was just the occasional I'd grow it for a month and get rid of it for two years and grow it for a month again. So being a an everyday beard wearer, as it were, is relatively new for me. I must say, I love how little time I have to put into shaving. Just a little, a little, a little it, trimming it, above it, and below it. to keep it from looking too rough, and then every three weeks or so, kind of trim the whole thing up, and, uh, and that's it. We've said it before, and we'll say it again. There is no other boxing podcast that gives you this material. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I mean, look, we may want to switch to a podcast every week where we talk exclusively about facial hair and, and just mix it's in true. a little boxing on occasion. We may want to go The number that of spinoffs we could have at this point, really. <laughs> Um, but let's stick with the boxing podcast that we actually do still okay. have now. Right. Um, uh, we have a Showbox triple header to preview. And our friend and the new Showbox expert analyst, Brian Campbell, will join us to help break down that card. We also have lots of outside the ring news to discuss, including the return of Canelo Watch. And I will be re revealing my rankings of the top five examples of a boxer overcoming adversity to win in this year, 21st century. But first... We have some fights in merry old England to discuss, uh, both a big one coming up next Saturday and a mildly surprising and mildly controversial fight that took place in London this past Saturday. Yep. Uh, John Ryder upset Daniel Jacobs by split decision in a 12-round super middleweight bout. And just how surprising or controversial it was might vary from one observer to the next. According to the odds, Jacobs was only a minus 160 favorite, so it wasn't necessarily a huge upset, but... 
given their respective previous levels of success at the top of the sport, it certainly was a surprising result to some. And the decision, a split 115-113 twice for Ryder and 115-113 once for Jacobs, was met with mixed reaction on Twitter and from various broadcasters. Some thought it was a fight that simply could have gone either way and the judges leaned toward the hometown fighter, while others called it a robbery and argued there was no way to find seven rounds to give to Ryder. The short story of the fight is that Jacobs boxed well over the first half of the bout and built a lead, arguably a huge lead, and Ryder came on in the second half and won most, if not all, of the last six rounds. Uh, I ended up scoring it 115-113 for Jacobs, giving him the first five rounds and then two of the final seven. A draw would have been fine. I consider 115-113 for Ryder to be a slight reach, but it's not outrageous. Uh, Kieran, what was your reaction to the scoring? And uh, while it's tempting to start with the American star fighter Jacobs and ask what went wrong, let's start instead with the guy who won, John Ryder. And I'll ask you, is this a fighter who, at age 33 and with five defeats, is now going places in the super middleweight division? I don't know about going places, but he's definitely shown... And both with his close and decidedly controversial loss to Callum Smith that you touched on last week, and now this close and somewhat controversial win over over Jacobs, that while he isn't necessarily able to clearly separate himself from fighters in perhaps the second tier of the division, and that's a tier that's really above everybody except Canelo and David Benavidez, in my in my mind, they they also aren't able to separate themselves from him. Um, and honestly, if you look at the super middleweight rankings, you've got that top layer of Canelo and Benavides, perhaps Caleb Plant or Jamal Jamal Charlo, if he were to move up and if he's able to stay out of some of the trouble that we're going to talk about later. Beyond that, I don't know that there's anybody right now who you'd make a, a clear favorite against Ryder. There's not like there's anything really fancy about him, but he is rugged. He is resilient. He is hardworking. He is strong. Um, Larry Merchant used to refer to Joe Frazier as the human question mark, right? right In the sense right. that he would ask very, very demanding questions of his opponents and only the very best could answer them. And obviously, I'm not trying to equate Ryder with Smoking Joe, but there's an element of, a, of that about him, I think. Um, you know, including the fact that he, he's, he's short and compact and strong for the division, but he's got this powerful motor. He will get on your chest. He will keep working and if you're not at your very very best if you have not come fully prepared and focused no matter what you come into the ring with in terms of a reputation or a record he'll find you out and and i think he's now it's interesting that after a relatively low-key start to his career he stepped it up now against two uh world-class opponents and he could have gone two and oh against them uh and so it does feel as if he's having this kind of late career resurgence. And, you know, he may well, you know, he's one of those guys who this is one of these places where the alphabet groups can actually come and do a good job here, because a lot of people are going to look at him and think, I don't want a piece of that. And if John Ryder is, you know, perhaps going to, to get himself a full title shot in the very final stages of his career, I think it's going to be one of those situations where, a title holder is going to have to be forced to face him because I don't think that he's going to be one of those guys who anybody is going to willingly face because he's just going to be, a, he's just a tough out and he's just an absolute nightmare to face. Um, but I will ask you, 
the sort of the, the question about the topic that you teased. We talked about Ryder, but what happened to Jacobs there? Like you said, he he was going fine. It seemed in the first part of that fight, and then he fell away. He's now thirty five. He's also coming off a very close win himself going into this. Is this the end for him now at the top levels of the sport? I think at the top levels, you know, we're, we're talking about a guy who barely lost to Canelo and barely lost to mm-hmm. Golovkin and, and handed Drevyanchenko his first loss in a close fight. He has that t- track record at, at the very highest level of the sport that, that he can compete with all those guys. So, yeah, this isn't quite the same Daniel Jacobs. It looks like he's done at the top level. He's now getting into razor close fights at the next level down. Nothing against Gabe Rosado and John Ryder, but they aren't Canelo and Golovkin or even yeah. quite Derevyanchenko, I don't think. Um, you know, Daniel Jacobs, he, he's a smart guy, level-headed, made good money, has overcome a lot, and has an enormous appreciation, I would think, for his life and his health. I wouldn't be at all surprised if Danny Jacobs doesn't fight again if he announces his retirement mm-hmm. sometime this year without stepping into the ring again. That's not based on any, you know, inside knowledge or scoops or anyone I've talked to. Just sort of a hunch about the kind of person he is and the way things are going these last couple fights. Um, as for what went wrong, you know, acknowledging that it is completely ridiculous for me to compare an example from my own athletic life with a world-class athlete like Daniel <laughs> Jacobs. Um I got to say, on Saturday afternoon, we had an unseasonably warm day here on the East Coast. So I went out on the basketball court with my son and my youngest brother. Uh, We weren't even playing a game of basketball. We were just casually shooting hoops and chasing down rebounds. And after about 20 minutes of very low aerobic exercise, just from taking jump shots, my legs were gone. I I, I could feel it happen. I just had no energy in my legs and I couldn't get any lift anymore. Now, Daniel Jacobs is 11 years younger than me and is in a million times better shape. So I'm not really comparing us at all. But (laughs) for the first six rounds of this fight, he was moving, boxing, circling, using his legs, and the fight looked fairly easy for him. And then he stopped moving. He, He stood and traded and fought John Ryder's fight. And it might just be that at age 35... Six rounds was all his legs could give him. That's what it seemed to me. Um, So I I think age is catching up to him. He's not shot, far from it, but he's lost a step, and that's enough to cost him a fight against a hungry pressure fighter Mm -hmm. like Ryder. Um, One other factor, Andre Rozier said something very telling to him in the corner as the fight was starting to swing Ryder's way. He said, I need mean. You're being Mm. real nice to him. Um, Mm. I think if Jacobs had stepped in and really tried to hurt Ryder once or twice in the first half of the fight, maybe Ryder wouldn't have been so fearless about marching forward in the second half. Um, Then again, maybe Jacobs just doesn't have that big punch in him anymore. But it also might be, you know, he's not mean enough or phrased Mm. another way. He's lost the eye of the tiger. Um, Whatever the case, Daniel Jacobs is still a very good fighter, but he's nowhere close to what he was even three years ago. Yeah. All right, let's go from a recap of a fight in, uh, you called it merry old England. I always think of it as jolly old England. Is there a preference? No, there's the Both are fine? Okay. (laughs) A recap of a a fight in either merry or jolly old England featuring one Brit (laughs) to a preview of a bigger fight featuring two of the top stars of British boxing in recent years. Although... Not exactly two top stars in their primes. It's a welterweight clash at Manchester Arena between Amir Khan and Kell Brook, both 35 years old, both stopped in recent years by Terence Crawford, both inactive for a while, 
but both still major attractions in their native country and well-known names to any fight fan in the U.S. as well. Uh, This will air on ESPN Plus in the States. We asked Gareth about this fight last week, and he said it's quite a huge deal over there, and he's very happy it's happening. Kieran, you're sort of British and sort of American. (laughs) Are you happy this is happening? And uh, perhaps an overlapping question, what kind of fight are you expecting to see on Saturday? I think I'm actually more ambivalent about it than Gareth. Um, okay. Boxing's a guilty pleasure for us all at the best of times. And, and when you have a situation like this and you've got two faded veterans squaring off to settle some personal beef at a point in their lives where either could damage the other uh, or they could both damage each other, mm-hmm. uh, it becomes a, even guiltier, I think. Um, but you look, if they're going to continue to fight, they may as well get the most money that they can and have the personal satisfaction of squaring off against their most hated rival in the process. I'd have been happy if both had decided it was time to hang up their gloves and retreat to the sofa, but I'm not a prize fighter. I don't have a prize fighter's mentality. They're the ones who want to finally go ahead with this. Uh, but it will certainly be, I suspect, as Gareth mentioned, a big event, a huge mm-hmm. event even in the UK. The crowd's going to be lit. Uh, and I will say this. I do think it will be exciting. Um you know, last week you mentioned Ali Frazier 3 as an example of how when two fighters are that bit slower, that that much more diminished, it can make for a more entertaining fight than it might have done earlier in their careers. I suspect we'll see that here. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see Khan starting strongly as he often does, um, assuming he still has a decent chunk of his speed remaining. Um, but for all his natural gifts... I mean, you're plateaued technically, I think, as a boxer a while back. Mm-hmm. Kelbrook, to my mind, never quite had the natural ability of, of Khan, but he was better technically. He generally remained stronger later in fights, and he always felt that little bit less fragile. There was always that question mark over Amir Khan. No matter how well he was doing, you always felt he was just one punch away from disaster. Um, yes, you know, following his, his battles, especially with Golovkin and Spence, you feel that Brook is perhaps more prone to damage the, uh, than he was before. And you, and you worry, you know, how those orbital bones would hold up over the course of a bruising contest. But I don't think this will be a lengthy fight. I, I, I suspect it might be short and explosive. I, like I said, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Khan moves out into an early lead and is looking good until, as he so often has done, he leaves his chin in place for just a second too long at mm-hmm. the end of a combination that lasts one or two punches too long and Brooke ends up knocking him out. So that's kind of what I'm thinking. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I have fairly similar thoughts. I mean, I guess what interests me is that Khan is such an X factor here. Uh, he mm. hasn't fought in about two and a half years. Never had the best chin, as you said. He hasn't beaten a world-class fighter since 2015 when he beat Chris Algieri. So I just don't know if he's still capable of fighting at a high level or no. if he's in that Victor Ortiz zone where... He's fun as long as it lasts, but it's probably not going to last long. Mm. Um, Brooke is certainly the more reliable of the two fighters, the one who's been less inactive heading into this, the one who has had some success against top opponents in the last five years. So my inclination is to favor Kel Brook. Um, as for you know that sort of question of uh, am I excited for it? Am I looking forward to it? I'm not in any way upset that it's happening. Mm. Um, I-, I will back Gareth's better late than never attitude but like you uh, kind of middle of the road i'm not i'm not i'm certainly wouldn't say i'm excited for it. it it's fine i'm just interested enough to probably make a point of watching it as it happens but 
you know, it's it's as much a curiosity as it is a meaningful sporting event at this point in my mind. Mm. Mm. Um, one other Saturday fight worth touching on. It's on the zone from Tijuana, Mexico. Undefeated middleweight contender Jaime Munguia, uh, fresh off a clear-cut decision win over Gabe Rosado just three months ago, meets 21-0-1 Demetrius Ballard. Uh, it's a nice-looking record there, Ballard, but he hasn't beaten anyone you've heard of. So this is a really significant step up in class for him against Munguia. Uh, Eric, from watching some video of Ballard, where do you see this as anything more than a stay busy fight for Jaime Munguia? And what do you see Munguia fitting into the middleweight division these days, assuming he wins this one in front of his hometown fans? Well, first of all, got to say this for Ballard, probably one of the top two Demetriuses in the middleweight division. <laughs> um, but yeah, he has fought absolutely nobody. Uh, his best opponent was Yamaguchi Falcao, and that ended in a 10 round draw. Ballard fights in a very straight-up style, no head movement, easy to hit. He's competent, but there's nothing special about his game, nothing tricky about his style. So, yeah, this looks to me like the classic homecoming, stay-busy fight. He's almost exactly what you'd want in order to make Munguia look good. He should give Munguia and the fans a few rounds, but I suspect he'll take too many punches to last the distance. This should be a KO win for Munguia that keeps his momentum going into hopefully a big fight soon. I look at the middleweight landscape. I mean, we've talked about how Munguia seems an ideal opponent for Canelo, uh, but that matchup isn't on anyone's lips right now. And uh, Canelo isn't coming back to 160, we don't expect. Right. So at 160, well, at the top, it's all guys hoping to fight Canelo, like Triple G and Jamal Charlo, who, as you said, we'll be talking about him in the news segment. Uh, Munguia's options are very much dependent on how things shake out for those other guys. If Triple G doesn't have a shot at that third fight with Canelo, then golovkin Mungia, the fight Nevada famously rejected several <laughs> years ago, that's a tremendous bout. Um, there's Demetrius Andrade, there's Carlos Adames, there's Chris Eubank Jr. As good as Mungia's looked lately, I don't know that his people are likely to steer him into an Andrade fight. Um, but there are certainly plenty of solid options, but... You know, in terms of the big steps up for a major fight, he kind of has to wait and see who Canelo isn't interested in and, and go for those scraps, I think. Yeah. Uh, there is one other televised card next weekend, not on Saturday, but on Friday on the Home Network. Starting at 9 p.m. Eastern, we have a Showbox triple header live from the Caribe Royale in Orlando, Florida. Six prospects with a combined record of 74-2-2, so four O's on the line. The main event is a 10-rounder in the lightweight division. Jermaine Ortiz is 14-0-1 with eight knockouts. He fought the likes of Boots Ennis and Teofimo Lopez in the amateurs. Uh, he makes his showbox debut against Nahir Albright, who is 14-1 with seven knockouts uh, and is an aspiring R&B singer. Uh, the co-feature is an eight-round super middleweight bout. Joe George, 11-0 with seven stoppages, who we all remember scoring a come-from-behind one-punch knockout of Marcos Escudero during the year of the uppercut. Uh, he meets Sean Hemphill, who is 14-0 with eight knockouts. And opening the show in an eight-round catchweight bout uh, between welterweight and super welterweight, Philly's own Paul Kroll, 9-0 with six knockouts, takes on Marquise Taylor with a record of 12-1-1. Not a whole lot of power, though, just one KO among his dozen wins. And joining us now to break it all down is one of the men who will be calling the card on Friday in his sophomore appearance. As a showbox expert analyst, he is both one of the fastest rising people in boxing media and also... And this cannot be stressed enough or too often. 
one of the very nicest. Our good friend, Brian Campbell. BC, welcome back, brother. Wow, I'm audibly humbled by that entrance. Thank you so much. Uh, great to be back on my favorite podcast. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> All right. But see, he's living up to the nice guy image right off the bat. Right? So uh, before we ask you about uh, this Friday's Showbox fights, Brian, I, I want to just double back to the January card, your Showbox debut. Uh, how was it working with uh, Barry and Raul and the whole Showbox team? And and uh, was it significantly different than working with the various hacks? I, I mean, various other broadcasters you've been paired with on other networks and other broadcasts. Uh, it, the only thing that was uh, different about it was just how easy it was. And that's just a tribute to the extended team. I mean, look, look, we could all sit here and collect Showtime paychecks and tell everybody how great Showtime is. And we can also just tell the truth. That's the number one broadcast in boxing. That's the reason why the hardcore boxing fans love this team so much. It's not just, of course, Barry and Raul. It's it's the care that the team behind the scenes puts in. That was an easy broadcast sitting mm. next to a guy in Barry Tompkins who's, who could take you up and down the road as he did when I was a kid, first getting into boxing, watching him and listening to him. And, and Raul Marquez, obviously, we, we know and love him. Uh, it was so much fun. And I think at the end of the day, if... Uh, you know, if I could bring anything to any broadcast, I want to bring fun and excitement. And in and, and it's a family team and a family crew mm-hmm. there. And uh, it was great. I mean, it was a fun little crowd there in Orlando. We're going to be back at the same location. And uh, um, I'm fired up. I'm, I'm, I'm fired up. I hope they remember me. I hope they welcome me back. You know, the Caribe Royale Resort, you know, it lived up to its billing. There. And and the one of the names you didn't mention, Steve Farhood, if, if I know Steve Farhood, I assume he was highly unsupportive uh, and not helpful at all as you were integrated into the team. Is, is that is that how you were treated by Steve? Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Steve Farhood, as we already know, is, is like the, you know, the the guy in, in terms of nicest guy, incredibly talented, all that. And obviously he's still contributing in a big way to these broadcasts. But to get him to, you know, pick up the phone and, and give me advice and encouragement and just, you know, let me know that he's there for me and that he couldn't be happier that I'm the guy transitioning. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a dream scenario because you know, I, look, this business sucks. There's a lot of sharks in this water. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And here's one of the greatest of all time. That's just like, Hey, let me, let me, let me put my arm around you. If you, if you want it. And I, Steve, I want it. Okay, buddy, I want it. Thank you. <laughs> so there was no hazing. I mean, they've all been together a long time. Like nobody pants you in the middle of the broadcast or anything like that. <laughs> no, no, nothing like that. You know, I, 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 I like that stuff. You know, I, I, was, I was hoping for a little bit. Of that, By know? not hazing you, they kind of hazed you, I guess. It's right. In a weird way. Yes, yeah. yes. That's right. So, of course, we knew you way back when. When you were just like a, a a cub doing like the little web show on ESPN, um, when I was the the backup editor uh, handling your two fine fine uh, written pieces. And hey guys, you it, it was the same when I got into this boxing game around 2010, 2011. It's the same now. You guys are my idols. All right. I loved editing your work, reading your work, and now, you know, podcasting next to you. Okay. Now we know you're full of it. (laughs) Right. You took it too far with idols. Yeah. I mean, come on, dude. All right. All right. right. I was going to ask about, you know, whether you sort of find yourself looking, looking down on these lowly podcasters now that you've left in your dust, but apparently not. No, no, I know never. And looking, you know, in this game, you know, you you get a cup of coffee and you could be uh you could be thinking about that coffee for a long time. All right. I just, uh, you know, the phone keeps ringing. I'm picking it up. But, uh, right. you know, I, I, I can't wait to hit the airways with you guys. I mean, I think a lot of people out there, if they're a hardcore boxing fan, they realized um, Atlantic City a few years back, the oh, three yes. of us, mm-hmm. Clarissa Shields versus uh, 
Christina Hammer, uh, yeah. you know, setting the stage at the way in that team right there. One day. OK, one day. Yeah. You know, when we were stuck in an elevator with Bryant Jennings, I knew I knew we were destined for greatness. <laughs> I know, Kira, just so the people know, when it was you, myself, Ellie Secback and Bryant Jennings that time stuck in that elevator. And, you know, I may have had a couple cocktails and looked at Bryant and said, hey, man. <laughs> You know, you could beat Tyson Fury. I know you That's can. Right. You How did. quickly did he uh, break open both doors to get out yep. of that elevator? That's right. <laughs> but but as he did that, as he left us trapped in the elevator, he poked his head back in and just said, easy work. Yeah. And then left us to it. Yes. <laughs> all right. All right. Enough kibitzing. Let, let's get your thoughts on each of these three fights that you're going to be calling on Friday in Orlando. Uh, the main event. Lightweights, Jermaine Ortiz against Nahir Albright. Uh, Ortiz had an excellent amateur career. He fought Boots Ennis, Teofimo Lopez. I understand he also sparred recently with Vasily Lomachenko, but he's coming off a draw against Joseph Adorno. Uh, and Albright, who's won 14 straight, might just have the best pro win on either guy's record, a stoppage of Michael Dutchover last time out. They're both making their showbox debuts. What are your thoughts, BC, on either fighter's ceiling or on what viewers should be looking for when the bell rings in this? Run? Look, I, you know, j- just uh, just what a month ago, I couldn't have gotten a better intro to what Showbox is all about when the triple header featured six unbeaten fighters. All right. Like that's sort of what it's about this time around. It's a combined record for the six of 74 two and two. And this main event has no uh, nothing to be upset about from the matchmaking. It's the lightweight division. We all know this is the one that that has next in the sport and has so many great young fighters that are, you know, from the four princes, as one Caramel Vinny would say <laughs> to to really, you know, there's probably a second group as well. You can add in there. These guys want to join that group in general. So I love this matchup. Ortiz, as you mentioned, I mean, is 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 he a little bit more of the A side of the two? It's it's hard to say. This is a pretty damn even matchup. You mentioned he sparred with uh, Lomachenko. He spent five rounds in there last year in California, preparing him for the for his most recent fight against Richard Comey. And you know what Ortiz says coming out of that was, "I held my own. I'm ready for this level." And I think even though you can look at his most recent fight as a blemish, that draw against Joseph Adorno, it almost was a win in a weird way. He had gotten dropped in that fight twice. Got up, showed his medal. And comes away with an eight-round majority decision in a very, very close fight. Um, Adorno is coming up, uh, you know, in the top rank side as well as a as a future fighter to watch. That was one of those early key matchups that showed you what Ortiz is all about. I think it was a test that he had a little bit of a slip up, but he showed you that he's ready for it. This is that type of fight again against Nahir Albright, who you know, hey, let's let's be fair here. He's he's Philly tough, Rask. Okay, and that you know, for most guys. From 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 greater Philadelphia, that means something. And, you know, <laughs> Albright, like Bernard Hopkins, has that lost their pro debut thing going on. But here's a guy in Albright who seems to be like adding power as he's stepping up in in class and figuring out really, you know, just through 15 pro fights. How to round out his game. I think anytime you see that, you're realizing here's a fighter who's growing quickly. So he's coming on. He's hungry. And you know he wants to grab that Mike Tyson Fury style and hit us with the same type of uh, vocal stylings he did <laughs> after that win over Dutchover when he shouted out Ashanti and, you know, sang a little boys to men. It's so hard to say goodbye. And, uh, you know, I can get behind a guy with that type of charisma. So I'm very <laughs> much looking forward, just like the show in January where Luis Nunez, right around the same division, you know, said, hey, look, I think I can I can play with those guys on the higher level. The winner of this fight 
come uh, Friday is going to find that out as well. So you said most guys from Philly are Philly tough. Were, yes. were you trying to uh, imply something there by not saying all guys from the Philly well, look, area you know, you're are from, Philly tough? You're from greater Philly. And to be fair, even, you know, King of Prussia, we're known for our malls. Harry Joe Yorgi was a tough <laughs> SOB. You know, the yeah, real boxing fans know. And so, you know, I mean, you drank from the same water source, Rask. I, I, I you know, I can't. I, can I claim the backbone is the same? I don't know. I don't know. this. You know? <laughs> Every I, man I, gets tested eventually. OK, I will say for the record, I am decidedly less tough than Harry Joe Yorgi. There's a gigantic gulf between us in toughness, but uh, I, I had a, a solid bet. You were a, about a minus 300 favorite to drop Harry Joe Yorgi's name during this podcast. <laughs> I'm glad I won that one. Uh, but, you know, look, I think we're going to get action in this fight, too. Obviously, mm-hmm. styles make fights, and here's two hungry, hungry fighters looking to make their name. And, um, I mean, I don't want to spill all of the, the great you know, bio facts I have, but do you guys know of the Renaissance man future that Jermaine Ortiz is setting up for himself? Are you aware of this background? I'm not. All right. I'm not. I don't want you. Um, I don't want to, I don't want you to blow all your best stuff from the broadcast, but right. this, now I'm intrigued. You got to give me some uh, well, of this. Well, look, yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a pro boxer. He's a full-time union carpenter. He's a full-time college student. He does real estate on the side. And then wow. on the other side, he trades stocks and is considering licensing to become a financial advisor. And we know he's called the technician. He wants to call his new company technician brokerage. So, you know, hey, he wins this fight. He may add to that that growing clientele short, you know, very quickly. So, yeah, yeah a little sneak peek at the commentary there. That's good. Thank you. <laughs> um, the co-feature. Uh, involves a familiar face for Showtime viewers, Joe George, uh, taking on Sean Hemphill in a 168-pound fight. Um, it's interesting, George, we haven't seen him at all in a year and a half since his one-punch KO of, of Marcus Escudero. Uh, Hemphill's fought six times in that span. Uh, do you think that that level of activity could possibly make a difference in this fight? You know, in most cases, you'd say, wow, the, you know, one guy's been out a long layoff, and he's also, Joe George, 32 years old for being a prospect at 11-0. But the whole thing about Joe George is nothing in his rise makes sense in terms of the traditional ones. So here's a guy who, you know, played college basketball and sort of picked up boxing by accident uh, at, at age 19 at age 20, and then goes on to become like a pretty good amateur. And then suddenly he's on showtime, knocking people out for knockout of the year contender. So while his yeah. opponent coming in here, Sean Hempel, who has a legitimate amateur background is a, is a very good boxer. His father's his trainer. Father's a former kickboxing world champion. Uh, you'd say, okay, that's an advantage right there. Hempel has been much busier, but George is just kind of going to the, you know, to, to his own tune here. The, and he's got an interesting backstory and he can bang. So, this is, again, another matchup, which anytime on Showbox, a win like this could really catapult you to big things. I think there's certain advantages that Hemphill brings that Joe George is just not going to be able to uh, deal with easily. But I don't think layoffs or anything weird like that because Joe George is on his own path up to this point. And I'm very interested to see before it's all said and done if he can really make a move in this sport. And, and it's not obviously it's, it's it's a rare circumstance when someone comes into it this late and finds this level of success. But he's non-traditional. And and so is his power, because uh, that rematch against Escudero, that knockout that you mentioned, that was eye opening. Yeah. Interesting that Hempel is managed by Jimmy Glenn's son, which, uh, yes. you know, anyone who spent any time in Jimmy's corner is is going to be paying some attention to Hempel, I think. Yeah, Adam Glenn uh, that you mentioned there, the son of the late uh, Jimmy Glenn, who's who's keeping the the great 
Manhattan dive bar alive there just outside of Times Square. I love to see that Adam Glenn is in into this, into boxing management and is going in this direction. And uh, man, I mean, Karen, you know, can you can you overly glorify the time spent in a dive bar that's like the size of like the hallway connecting my basement bathroom to my <laughs> office? I don't think so. I don't think you can. I, I mean, the times that you and I have had there, I mean, can you get, you know, four shots and four beers for, for less than uh, $25 anywhere else in this, in this fine earth. No, you can't do that. You've never bumped into Jim Lampley out of coming out of your hallway, connecting your yeah. basement. So, I mean, yeah. look, you know, that, that was a great moment. You know, I yeah. mean, you know, we, we were very high on triple G knocking out Curtis Stevens just a few hours before, you know, and then to see Jim say, you're damn right. He's for real. <laughs> All right. Jim, turns out he was right. You know, turns yeah. out. Yep. All right. Yep. All right. Uh, opening the show. Uh, it is Paul the Punisher Kroll, uh, yet another product of the hard streets of Philadelphia. Uh, he takes on Marquise Taylor, described as a spoiler. Uh, he's bumped off three undefeated opponents, but he only has one knockout among his 12 wins. Uh, any insights, BC, about the style matchup here or, or how good my Philly boy Kroll might be? Yeah, this this has a early fight of the night feel to it. And I think, you know, hearing both fighters talk about that, it confirms it. It's two welterweights. The catchweight's at 152 pounds because of the sort of last minute nature of it being signed. But let's start with Paul Kroll. Nine and oh, Philadelphia, you mentioned it. But the Punisher is the nickname. He was a, a legitimately uh, strong amateur boxer looking to do big things, looking to join that 2016 Olympic team and then had some of those setbacks outside the ring that can hold people back and, and uh, you know, was arrested, uh, served his time. And who he's starting to be coming out of that, he regularly spars Julian Williams, Danny Garcia. He's had some time sparring Sean Porter. He is big-time promise. He's one of those guys who could have been something, oh, but now he's turned his life around and has that opportunity to still be that. He's a boxer, but he's aggressive. And it's such an interesting matchup because Marquise Taylor is hungry as all heck coming after him. It's rare at this level, like you said, 12-1-1 and the record with one KO. But he calls he's a self-proclaimed body snatcher, Marquise Taylor. And I think watching him on the tape and, and, and hearing him talk reminds me a little bit of, uh, you remember Super Arela Oliveira? Oh, yeah, he was a yeah. Friday Night Fight stalwart. A guy who, let's be fair, did not have one punch power or power in general, but got inside on you with activity uh, and just put it on you. That's Marquise Taylor's style. He says, I don't worry about knockouts. My goal is to throw is to land a hundred punches per round. So he's going to be in there pushing that pressure. He is a very good body puncher and he's beaten three unbeaten fighters up to this point, giving them their first L. So uh, also talking about Philly legends, you know, he did fight to a no contest against Kermit Cintron. You know, that oh, time. so okay. uh, so uh, I mean, maybe, you know, washed Kermit, but he 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 was uh, he was a tough Philly gatekeeper post um, falling out of the ring that time. You know, <laughs> yeah. yes. so Cintron is interesting in terms of whether we claim him as Philly or whether we say, oh, no, no, he's Reading, Pennsylvania. When he's going well, he's Philly. But, uh, you okay. know, now okay. at this point, no, he's 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 Reading, Pennsylvania's own Kermit Cintron. So, I mean, when he, he, when he gets he, knocked out twice against Sergio Martinez and gets a draw, which, which, which way do you look at him? Then? Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that's, that's right uh, yeah, that's more Allentown, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, BC, um, I interrupted you. But look, uh, Marquise Taylor is, is six foot one and, you know, he fights like he's five foot three. So he's going to be looking to get inside and we're going to see action here. I love we always love this in boxing. We love the hungry B-sides. And I only call Marquise Taylor respectively a B-side because that's the attitude he brings into these fights that, okay, I don't care. Oh, you have to fight tomorrow? I'll, I'll be there. Uh, I'm going to be the guy showing everybody who I am by the end of the night. So you love that sort of 
TV friendly fighter spirit. And he, he wears that on his sleeve already, even though pretty strong record at 12, one and one coming in here. Yeah. Yeah. This is great. This is, you know, talking to you, I think underlines what it is that people love about Showbox, And when we all love Showbox, it's guys who many of us don't know, um, don't know much about their background, don't know much about the records, but man, I tell you, Gordon Hall matches them up well. And, we're almost always pretty much guaranteed excitement on the show box cards. Absolutely. What a reputation the series has. That's why, yeah. you know, it's, it is such an honor to be on it. And, and obviously Barry Raul, Steve Farr, you couldn't ask for better guys to call fights with, but uh, there's just something special, you know, in, in, in a little inside, you know, baseball on this is, you know, as a, as a announcer on the series, you're encouraged to, to be the Simon Cowell, to be the, the, mm. you know, mm. the, the tough judge at the end of the night and say, look, you know, Hey, he fought well, but right. I don't, you know, I may not see the, you know, the same bright future. And that's why series like this are so strong to show us, to show the fighters themselves, which direction they're heading. Everybody's got a nice looking record early on, but with, mm. which direction are you going? It's going to be interesting for you, I think. Sorry, down, down the road when having the opportunity to call guys early on and then, some of these guys are going to be really good down the road, and it's going to be fun to see them again, like you know, like five six years time. Karen, I dream of having a relationship with a fighter as close as you have with one Ishe Smith. Okay, ah, right, there right. you go. All right, you guys were looking right. at timeshares together at one point. I, I love it. You know, but you were there. You were there from from the beginning to the end. You know, right. it just so happened, and 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 to do that in this sport, I'm old enough now to start to get some of that. It's great. It's great. I love yeah, it. it. What a, what a gross, ridiculous sport that we call our favorite thing ever. <laughs> you know, I love it. This is great. And I, and I have to squeeze in a quick, very important question. As long as you uh, said you, you're encouraged to be the Simon Cowell, Barry and Raul, who's the Paula and who's the Randy? How, how do you, oh, how do you or, oh, or, wow. or do you need some time to think about that? And maybe your next report appearance, you'll break that down for us. I was going to, well, here's an early spoiler, big time Randy vibes coming out of Barry. Okay. All right. I mean, Barry did play bass for uh, journey at one point, I believe. Uh, right. Didn't is, he? This, is this true? No, but Randy Jackson. Okay. Did, so, you know. I was going to say, did I miss this in the bio? I'm going to bring this up on the air Friday for sure. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. I was just uh, having fun with my deep knowledge of Randy Jackson's background. Yeah, yeah that, that Randy Jackson could slap a B and I'm talking about the bass strings. OK, <laughs> I you know hope you I mean? are. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. OK. <laughs> Once again, the kind of analysis you don't get from any other boxing podcast. That's right. <laughs> BC, it's always a pleasure. Uh, we're really happy for you, man. It's really great to see how well you're doing. And you're a great addition to Showbox. Uh, just gives us another reason to watch it. It's just really happy to see how, how well you're doing. And thanks so much for joining us here again genuinely appreciate that comment thank you so much always great to, to run it back with you guys i mean look you know i'm just a fan i couldn't wait each week to hear karen mulvaney heavy hitting boxing podcast i couldn't <laughs> wait to hear that every week okay is that podcast i can't believe still anyone going? listened to that yeah. <laughs> karen one day we'll tell the story about how that podcast got canceled right you know <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly uh, the company the was quick like summary is ESPN yeah. are like, wait, you work for us? You're fired. <laughs> they were like, their exact response was, we don't have a boxing podcast. And we and we currently don't want one either. We're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, you had a good run, Karen. Yeah. Oh, well, it is what it is. BC, <laughs> thanks a lot, brother. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. All right. Thanks again to BC. Uh, as regular listeners know, we only make official predictions for the main event for Showbox shows. Uh, so let's give our picks for Ortiz versus Albright. We're tied three to three early in the year here. And you're up first, Kieran. I should actually, before we do that, I should go back and point out that I did 
Kermit Sintron dirty in our conversation ah, there. Okay. When I talked about him being knocked out twice and getting a draw against Sergio Martinez, which was a horrible, horrible slander. I should point out that he was knocked out once and got the draw. <laughs> okay. All right. So, good. Glad you clarified. You can now reclaim him from Reading. <laughs> okay. um, but uh, to get back onto your thing, uh, as with a lot of showbox picks, I thought this was a tough, tough one, not least because, you know, of the relative paucity of tape I've been able to see of either of them. Um, they both have very similar records and an almost identical KO record um, to recap. Ortiz is 14-0-1 with eight KOs. Albright is 14-0-1 with seven KOs. Despite that, um, Albright looks to me to be the one who's more likely to try to be the fighter, whereas Ortiz is more of a boxer. Ortiz looks more compact, his punches tighter, his guard higher. Albright looks a little bit looser, uh, more offensively minded, uh, perhaps ever so slightly less proficient technically. Um, sometimes when Ortiz does start opening up, he, he looks a little bit less than impressive. He doesn't plant his feet terribly well. Um, and as he showed against Joseph Adorno, he can get caught sometimes mm. when he does open up as well. Um, both men have stepped up their quality of opposition lately, but it is interesting to me. I noted that Albright's KO percentage has, has increased of late. He has stoppage wins in five of his last six contests. Um, whereas Ortiz has been fairly consistently scoring stoppages pretty much every other win throughout his career, which maybe suggests that Albright is improving, that he's learning as he progresses. And given that of those stoppages, you know, one came in the sixth and another in the eighth, maybe he's benefiting from having more rounds in a fight. I don't think Albright will get a stoppage here, but I think he may get a win. I have a feeling he may have a bit too much activity, a bit too much energy, I wouldn't be entirely shocked. I wouldn't be at all shocked, actually, if Ortiz proves that he's the one who's able to keep his form better and outboxes Albright to a decision. But I'm going to stick with Albright just, if nothing else, through activity, scoring a very close but unanimous decision win. Okay, interesting. Um, so I rewatched that uh, that draw between Ortiz and Adorno. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's officially a blemish on Ortiz's record. But as Brian said, it's kind of a good draw, both yep. an experience that should make him better and certainly presents evidence that he has a lot of heart and guts. Ortiz needs to shore up his defense, clearly, but he's a high upside prospect, very fast, very fluid, and he has that advantage of lots of experience you know, in the amateurs and in sparring against the best in the world. But uh, this is a tough matchup here against Albright. He's very long and lanky, throws a variety of punches. He's a bit awkward. Um like BC said, and like you just said, this is classic showbox. This is classic Gordon Hall matchmaking in hmm. that I, I feel like I'm flipping a coin, picking a winner here. I, I was tempted to pick Albright just because he's from the Philly area, uh, Sicklerville, New Jersey specifically, but both because my leaning is, is in fact slightly toward Ortiz and on top of that, now that you've picked all right, it makes it more interesting. Right. I'm going to go the other way. I, I'm going to say this goes the distance, as you said, and that it's razor close, as you think it will be. But I'm going to say that Ortiz's offense is more eye-catching, and I'm going to say he takes a possibly disputed split decision. Okay. Um, but this is one of those fights where I'm going to wait for the betting odds to come out, and even though I just picked Ortiz, if they make Albright a two-to-one underdog or more, I, I think I'll be betting on him. Okay. All right. 
All right, it is time for the news, and our main event this week is something that seems to become our main event in one form or another <laughs> once or twice every year. It is hashtag Canelo Watch, as the boxing world is buzzing with speculation about who Canelo Alvarez will be fighting next. Uh, early in the week, ESPN's Mike Coppinger reported that Canelo is on the verge of signing a two-fight deal with Eddie Hearn and Matchroom Boxing, the old Cinco de Mayo-Mexican Independence Day combo to face Dmitry Bivol at light heavyweight, followed by a third fight with Gennady Golovkin, with both fights on DAZN pay-per-view. Yes, pay-per-view distributed by the streaming service that vowed to kill pay-per-view. <laughs> uh, that was the report, but then Canelo's manager, trainer, Eddie Reynoso, came out on social media Thursday and said that report, quote, has no truth or foundation behind it, insisting a decision has not been reached and that Team Canelo is fielding offers from both Matchroom and PBC. The PBC offer, it has been widely reported, is for a fight with Jamal Charlo on that same May 7th date. However, in a related piece of news that will lump into this news main event, Charlo was arrested Friday afternoon in Texas and charged with felony assault against a family member and or member of his household and could face between two to ten years in prison if found guilty. You don't have to go too far out on a limb to suspect this is damaging to the chances of Canelo Charlo happening next. But one never knows. Uh, as we record this on Super Bowl Sunday, there is still no announcement of Canelo's next fight. Kieran, any guesses how this will play out with Canelo? Does the Bevel-Golovkin combo excite you? And how serious does Jamal Charlo's situation appear from the limited reporting on it? Uh, any guesses you asked, and and that's really all I have at this <laughs> okay. point. Of guesses, you know, um, when Raleigh Romero was yanked from the pay per view against Javante Davis, uh, following sexual assault allegations against him, um, we said it made perfect sense that Showtime and PBC did that, that they replaced him with Isak Cruz, because even if Romero were innocent, and you know the investigation has since been closed, um, the legal cloud hovering over him wasn't a good look for a pay-per-view would, would likely sort of overshadow a lot of the buildup of the pay-per-view and would also importantly and inevitably raise questions about his availability. And much the same sort of applies here, you have to mm -hmm. figure. It, it's, it's difficult for me to see Canelo, no matter which way he'd been leaning prior to this, wanting to go into a pay-per-view under which he'll have to answer questions, um, you know, about about charlo and, and his legal situation um and it should be noted this is look charlo is innocent until proven guilty but this is now the second little run-in that he's had with the law and i don't mean to say little run-in because there are accusations of, of you know uh, uh, physical assault here which is mm -hmm. quite serious but he also had that issue with supposedly running out on a, on a check at a restaurant not not right. far back um I can't imagine Canelo would be very happy about being in a situation where he's constantly being asked, hey, how do you feel about why are you in a pay-per-view with a guy who might have like a domestic assault uh, situation against him? And he would also, as with the Romero situation, he's going to want some airtight assurances about availability, even if he were to decide that he's okay with going ahead with that. I guess... A lot depends on how advanced negotiations were in either direction, right? I guess if they were really close to finalizing a Charlo fight, it's going to be a question of how keen will the Canelo camp be to rip that up and then head back to the intersection and go back down the, the road that leads to Bivol and Golovkin instead. Um, 
My guess, and again, I emphasize this is only a guess, is that if the situation was 50-50 before this, it's probably now 75-25, maybe 80-20 in favor of BIBOL and Triple G. Right. And if the scales were already in, tipped in that direction, then this has probably sealed it. Um, as for how I feel about how excited or whatever I am about a BIBOL Triple G two-fight package, um, I'm all right with it. I'm fine with it. Um, the fact of the matter is that Canelo is starting to run out of really good opponents. Right. Um, uh, hence the the sort of speculation a while back about Cruiserweight. Uh, I'm fine with Bivol. I would think that on my list of ideal Canelo opponents, he might be about number four right now. He's behind Benavides. He's behind Benavidez. Right. He's kind of sort of equal with Charlo. I guess I'd flip those two back and forth, Charlo and Bivol, depending mm-hmm. on my mood. He's such it's, the thing is with Bivol, he's a strange one, as we've discussed before. He can at times he can appear almost diffident in the ring. I mean he has undoubted skills and quite often early on in a fight he'll look very impressive and then he'll just kind of settle into a pattern. Um something seems to be a little bit missing with him. The whole is less than the sum of his parts, I think. Um mm-hmm. It feels like there's always something holding him back a little bit. I don't know if it's a lack of confidence or a lack of a killer instinct, but, you know, he's still one of the very best light heavyweights in the world. But I can see him having skills to hold Canelo off early. I don't know if he would have the toughness and resolve to keep him off late. It's a sort of fight that I could see looking an awful lot like, like, like a lot of other Canelo fights. Uh, Canelo may be falling behind on the cards early, taking control then evening of the fight up on the cards and, and scoring a late stoppage. So I'm fine with it, but I'd much rather see him against Benavides or, or, or a better BF who would, I think, ask more questions and be less predictable. And I honestly don't know how I feel at this stage about Canelo Golovkin 3. Um, I guess a lot would depend on how Gennady looks against Rio de Murata, if they even go ahead still with that fight. Right. If they do reschedule it, if the prospect of a full fight with Canelo is on the cards... As we've discussed before, it feels almost a little bit unfair what's happened to Golovkin over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Over 24 rounds of their those two guys fighting, I gave Canelo 13 rounds and Gennady 11, and I think you gave him 12 rounds apiece. Right. Um, it's by no means a stretch to argue that Gennady did enough to win both fights, or at least one. Uh, but since then, Canelo's been steamrolling top-flight opposition, and Golovkin has had Steve Rolls, who he flattened, maybe got away with one a little bit against Sergei Derevyanchenko um, before rebounding against Kamil Zeramata. And a man who used to fight three or four times a year is now entering the ring on average once a year. Um, I, I don't know. Golovkin was never a big middleweight, and Canelo's now morphed into a solid super middleweight slash light heavyweight. And like you said, Canelo probably isn't moving back down to 160, so, that, so Golovkin would have to move up to 168. Um, I, of course, very much wanted to see the first fight between Canelo and Golovkin. I very much wanted to see the second one. But by the time a third one rolled around, if this is indeed what's going to happen, it will have been five years since the since the first fight, four since the rematch. And Golovkin will be 40 years old and near the tail end of a long, hard Hall of Fame career. I don't know that I'd be super excited about it at this point, to be honest. Yeah, uh, some quick chime-ins on, uh, on a few different uh, topics that, that you hit on there. I'm pretty much with you on the, the idea of Golovkin, that I just, there's a sense that the time has passed and it's going to be a mismatch now, but I guess we were all kind of saying the same thing heading into Pacquiao Marquez 3, when Pacquiao mm. was really seemed to be peaking, um, that people 
almost unanimously were picking Pacquiao and in fact picking Pacquiao to knock him out in the third fight. And the people who were really paying close attention said, well, you know, maybe Marquez's style is just always going to give Pacquiao problems. He's just good enough and tricky yeah. enough that it's never going to be easy, even if we're all favoring Pacquiao here. Uh, and in the end, Pacquiao won what I thought was a really lousy decision. So the fact that Golovkin gave Canelo two basically dead evenish fights, it opens the door a little for thinking yeah. that. I guess we should see it a third time just to be sure. But I kind of feel like Canelo's going to kick his ass at this point. Um, Bivol, I'm right with you. And I just wonder if it's one of those fights, though, that I will, as it draws closer, if it's happening. It feels like the kind of fight that I'll talk myself into wondering yes. if Bivol is a disastrous yes. style for Canelo and might just pull yes. this thing off, even though right now, in my mind, I'm thinking Canelo should win that one. And the last thing on the charlo Raleigh romero comparison, which I think is... A very appropriate comparison to make. The tricky thing is we don't quite know what Charlo's being accused right. of. Romero, we saw the accusations very yeah. clearly laid out and thought, you know, those are bad. If if there's any truth yeah. to them, that's bad. Uh, Charlo, for all we know, is it possible he just punched an uncle or something? You know, right. that we're not quite sure how serious it is. So that's where I would just say. It that's sounds valid. similar, but it may or may not actually be all that similar. Yeah, yeah, that's a really valid observation, actually, and and you know, and that may well factor into any consideration. If 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 the that fight is definitely on the table still, then you know that those are the questions that right. Team Canelo is, is asking right now. So yeah, no, agreed. Good point. Okay. Um, we have plenty of stuff to cover in our news undercard. First up, the most serious business. Uh, former lightweight titleist Robert Easter was shot three times while reportedly attempting to flee from a group of attackers trying to rob him of his jewelry. But he is apparently doing OK. He was able to tweet from his hospital bed and assure fans he expects to recover fully. Uh, several items regarding fights happening, not happening or possibly happening. Errol Spence, or Dennis Ugas, is now official for April 16th from Jerry World in Texas on pay-per-view, although it's not yet certain whether it will be Fox or Showtime handling that pay-per-view. In other Showtime-related uncertainty, uh, Roger Gutierrez had to drop out of the February 26th main event against our recent guest, Chris Colbert. Uh, prime time on Showtime will go on, but the new opponent is not yet known. And Keith Eideck of Boxing Scene has reported on other expected Showtime fights in March and April, although none have been officially announced yet. But the word is that Jermel Charlo, Brian Castaño 2 on March 19th with Tim Zhu against Ter Terrell Gaucher on the undercard and Erickson Lubin versus Sebastian Fundora on April 9th with Tony Harrison taking on Sergio Garcia in a supporting bout. Looks like they are on the cards. Um, announced this week for March 26th on ESPN is Miguel Burchelt's return from his defeat against Oscar Valdez. He will take on Jeremiah Nakatila. And lastly, Ryan Garcia has announced the split from trainer Eddie Reynoso, and he has now linked up with our good friend Joe Goosen. Uh, Eric, a lot to look at there. Uh, any thoughts on any or all of the above? Uh, let's start with the Garcia Goosen news, because it is the subject of my pick for tweet of the week. Um, and this is a visual tweet. So, uh, Kieran, I'm going to send it to you now to okay. take a gander uh, as I explain it. Uh, do you have uh, Twitter DMs uh, open handy, a phone or a computer? As yes, I send this to you? Okay. Uh, I have just sent you. A tweet. Um, it was posted Friday morning by at Daily Brews 2, and it reads, 
So this is the guy that's going to be training Ryan Garcia, question mark. And below is a picture of a small, oh fluffy God. dog wearing a <laughs> denim jacket and sunglasses. And I'll be damned if that dog doesn't indeed capture the essence of Joe Goosen. Uh, cute animals are, are a cheap way to get likes on social media, but uh, what the hell? This one works for me. Uh, I recommend oh, everyone man. look it up at Daily Bruce to scroll to his tweets from February 11th. A good chuckle there. Uh, before before I move on to the rest of my news reactions, uh, any any comments on that uh, picture I just sent you? The uh, the Starbucks coffee cup makes that picture. <laughs> yeah. That is that is the best of it. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, we all know that Joe Goosen is a tremendous boxing coach and a great guy and a smart guy who, who really understands human psychology. I'd like to think he'll be a great fit for Garcia, um, who you know it's a tricky proposition to to motivate him, not coddle him but also not ignore his mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Hopefully Joe is the right guy for the job. I'm not sure. We'll see. Um, Touching on some of the other stuff quickly, our best wishes to Robert Easter. Glad to hear he seems to be okay. Uh, Spence Ugas, excellent matchup. Ugas is a very live underdog there, I think. But uh, I'll wait to go all in on the hype until I know whether it's a Showtime fight or not. Um, (laughs) Bummer about Roger Gutierrez. But this was always about Colbert more than the opponent. So... I'm optimistic they'll find someone suitable for a primetime on Showtime telecast, uh, although there's not a lot of time. The fight is less than two weeks away, so we'll see what uh, our friends uh, Stephen Espinoza and company come up with there. Um, and all those other not-quite-official Showtime fights have appeal. Uh, Lubin versus Fundora is particularly fascinating. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, in terms of this uh, very unofficial schedule at the moment, uh, I like what I see. All right. Let's conclude with this week's top five list. Uh, Last week, Eric, you set me the task of coming up with five fights since January 1st, 2000, in which a fighter overcame adversity to win. Adversity was not defined, um, but you used examples from the before time, such as Larry Holmes against Ernie Shavers, uh, when Shavers famously one of the hardest punches in boxing history had Holmes down, only for Larry to haul himself off the canvas and score the win. Uh, There are so very many options here, I almost found myself a bit overwhelmed. Mm. Um, And a lot of it, I I think, really depending on one's definition of adversity. Um, I have no doubt that I have forgotten or neglected a ton, and possibly even had a couple in here that you don't. But here's what I came up with. Okay. And we will start off number five. It's March 16th, 2013. Tim Bradley, a decision win over Ruslan Provodnikov. I actually included this, much your justifiable in hindsight disdain, on my most recent <laughs> top five list of fights that I wished had gone more than 12 rounds. But I think it belongs here. Uh, it only manages to qualify. You've specified that the fighter had to actually come back and win, not just get a draw. Mm-hmm. Uh, this only just qualifies because um, uh, because of a mistake by referee Pat Russell, who miscalled a first-round knockdown of Bradley as a slip. Had he called it correctly, this fight would have been a draw. Either way, the first two rounds of this contest were hellacious for Bradley, uh, who entered the ring at the then Home Depot Center with a bit of a chip on his shoulder, having been given a hugely controversial decision over Manny Pacquiao uh, last time out. Uh, But Provodnikov launched himself at him from round one, scored what should have been that knockdown in the first, battered him again in the second, badly enough that Bradley said afterwards, by the end of the second round, he was badly concussed and basically fighting on instinct. But despite the fact that he was boxing on instinct, he somehow managed to pull himself together to start winning rounds, even though Provodnikov would periodically just come right back at him and win a round by just battering him. Um, 
at different points of the fight, the trainers of both men were uh, urging their fighters to keep going, uh, otherwise they'd stop it. And in the 12th round, somehow, uh, with Bradley up uh, on the cards and Provodnikov seemingly in need of a knockout, he damn nearly scored it, uh, finally putting Bradley down hard uh, with just seconds remaining in the fight. Somehow, Tim hauled himself to his feet, saw out the round, secured the win on the scorecards. But that adversity he suffered in that fight, as we talked about a few weeks ago, really, really affected him for quite some time. And he paid the price uh, with some lingering effects uh, for that for quite some time afterwards. But really, for a good 10 rounds, Tim Bradley didn't know where the heck he was. And he still managed to eke out a win against a very, very dangerous opponent. Yeah, this is a great pick. And it's actually higher on my list, although I wonder if if you've if I'm about to hear some picks from you that I didn't even think of, uh, perhaps, or, or we just have some slightly different op- opinions on the order to put these in. But this was the one that I came closest to considering for number one instead mm-hmm. of the obvious choice, which we'll get to, which may or may not be your number one. But we've kind of talked about it the last couple of weeks anyway. Um, this was the one that I was like, hmm, maybe this could be number one because of. Tim Bradley basically fighting in a fog for 10 rounds and and coming through it. Uh, that's extreme adversity that he fought through. So I actually had this as my number two, um, okay. but, uh, but number five sounds just fine to me. I'm curious now, what else is on your list? Well, <clears throat> in the Simpsons episode, the Homer they fall, <laughs> Homer Simpson becomes a pro boxer under the guidance of Moses Lack. And the, for legal purposes, not at all meant to be Don King figure of Lucius Sweet. Uh, he has no discernible talent except the ability to soak up punishment until his opponents collapse from exhaustion. And that basically was the evident strategy and the winner of my number four contest, Lehman Brewster, who defeated oh. Vladimir Klitschko by fifth round TKO on April 10th, 2004. It's a weird one, this. This is off my list, the one that I was the most unsure about including partly because of the way it ended. Is it really a case of Brewster overcoming adversity if Klitschko just basically collapsed? Um, There were, of course, all kinds of allegations and claims of dastardly, rascally tricks afterwards, of too much Vaseline, of tainted water bottles and so forth. Um, The fact that the evidence that Klitschko didn't actually believe any of that comes in the fact that for the rest of his career, as a consequence of this fight, Klitschko fought in a restrained, controlled manner that helped ensure him against gassing out. But the fact is, for four rounds, Brewster, uh, whose longtime trainer had passed away just six months previously, who entered the ring as a massive, massive underdog, was being utterly impaled by the Klitschko jab and left hook. Uh, He barely landed a punch until partway through round two. Did land a good left hook in round three, but then Klitschko just got back on top of him. In round four, Vladimir started throwing the right hands as well. He bloodied Brewster's nose, seemingly dropped him from a hook, although referee Robert Bird called it a push then completely wobbled him and dropped him hard with a right hand. And then for the first part of round five, the punishment just continued. Jab, jab, right hand, jab, jab, right hand. Brewster just walking into all of them. And then suddenly the punishment didn't continue at all. Klitschko looks tired. He dropped his hands. Brewster landed a pair of crunching left hooks that sent Klitschko into the ropes so hard that Bird called it a knockdown. Brewster unloaded till the end of the round. And then Klitschko just collapsed on the canvas Barely had the energy to haul himself up, tried to crawl to the corner, but it prompted Bert to call it off. It was a huge upset, a bizarre upset. Um, And like I said, I thought twice about this one, 
but I included it because it was unique. I was trying to change up the list a little bit so that they weren't all very similar kinds of fights. Because the odds were so massively stacked against Brewster, and because basically for four and a half rounds, all he was doing was stopping punches with his face until he wasn't. Yeah, that's that's a good pick. I think it's a perfectly valid one to include, and I it did not occur to me because I guess I had kind of forgotten just how much punishment Brewster took prior to that for the, what ended up being the final round of the fight. I had sort of forgotten it. I just remembered the Klitschko collapse, but uh, and as you were uh, you know recalling it there, going through the round by round of it, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. He really was beating the hell out of Lehman Brewster until uh, things turned around. So yeah, it's a good pick. One that hadn't occurred to me, but a uh, solid choice. So I was ringside for that fight. Uh, I was ringside for this one too uh, on November 21st, 2015. And so, sir... Were you? Um, this was such a great fight that whoever had won it could have could have qualified here. In the event, it was Francisco Vargas mm-hmm. who prevailed by ninth round TKO over Takashimura. That's a knowing and agreeing mm, in the background, yes, I think, yes. by the sounds of it. <laughs> um, Vargas started extremely well, uh, nearly knocking down Mura in the first, uh, scoring a 10-8 round on one card, winning the next two rounds also. But Mura was strong. By the end of the third, Vargas had a nasty swelling under his right eye. Then in the fourth, uh, around that Mura was already winning, Mura put Vargas down hard in the corner, and that swelling now burst open and was leaking blood. The tide had turned. It continued to turn around five, six, and seven. Uh, Vargas looked as if he might be able to regain a bit of momentum in the eighth, but then a Mura left hand knocked him backward, and he unloaded at the end of the round, with Vargas now cut on his upper right eyelid as well. Um, my recollection, and honestly, I no longer have much faith in my boxing memory, but you were there too, <laughs> so you can tell me if I'm correct or not. But my recollection is that we turned to each other at around this point and agreed it was starting to get pretty ugly mm-hmm. and could stand to be stopped. And indeed, in round nine, it was stopped. But in Vargas's favor, he came out at the start of that round seemingly knowing he needed to go for broke. Dropped Mura hard onto his back. Mura flopped around on the canvas like a fish for a few seconds. Dragged himself up, clung onto Vargas desperately as Vargas sought to press on the advantage, but to no avail as referee Tony Weeks stepped in, perhaps in hindsight on a rewatch at a less than ideal moment. But the end seemed in sight anyway, even if sight was something that Vargas cannot have had much of by the end of that fight. Yeah, my recollection matches yours uh, on this one, and my ranking of it almost matches yours. I had this one as my number four. You put it at number three. So yeah, this is right up there, and... uh, Tremendous fight, the fight of the year in 2015, uh, quite uh, convincingly so. And uh, yeah, all right. A little bit of a mix here of some fights uh, that I I had on my list and some fights that I uh, hadn't thought of. And so I'm curious uh, once again to see what remains. This is going to surprise you a little bit. Not that it's on the list, but where it is. Um, As I said, I was ringside for those last two. I was ringside for this one. And I'll bet you're surprised it isn't my number one. Mm. Um, Honestly, I'm a little as well. And it could very (laughs) easily make it my number one. But again, I'm just trying to be a little bit less than incredibly predictable. Uh, It is May 7th, 2005. Diego Corrales, TKO 10, Jose Luis Castillo. I do still consider this to be... Absolutely one of the very greatest fights of all time, and to my mind, the greatest of the century, and the 10th and final round, one of the greatest rounds in boxing history. I very, very much doubt I'll ever be ringside for a better fight. Uh, there isn't much more to be said about this fight that hasn't been said already. If you don't know what happened in this fight, <laughs> and you don't know what happened in the 10th round, I don't know how you stumbled across this podcast, but stop the podcast. Go away. I don't care if you're on a subway or if you're in a cab or whatever, but go and watch the fight uh, or at least the 10th round and then come back. Um, 
Everything about it is incredible. Corral is ice swelling down twice in round 10, spitting out his mouthpiece, getting him a point deduction. Joe Goosen, just the epitome of cool and, uh, uh, and intensity at the same time, uh, telling him to get inside. And then, of course, Corral is coming back, hurting Castillo, stopping him against the ropes. In terms of courage and grit and bravery and determination, there have been few examples to match it. If you want to get someone to understand my boxing fans can get so excited about their sport, this is Exhibit A. Everything about this is what makes boxing so great. And the feeling in that arena when Corrales roared back from the brink of defeat to score the win is something I will never forget. All right. I, I, I do consider this uh, an upset. I thought uh, it was almost certain you'd put this at number one. I did put it at number one, but uh, that's not to be said that there isn't a case for uh, something else. There's one one other one near the top of my list that I'm curious to see if that's your number one. But uh, yeah, I mean, that that. Tenth round of Corrales Castillo when uh, the little the little fluffy dog in the denim jacket with the Starbucks <laughs> cup told uh, told Diego you better effing get inside on him classic moment in uh, boxing history. All right, uh, my number one uh, wasn't the biggest fight in history, nor does it involve the greatest boxes in history. But if you want the definition of prevailing in the face of adversity, this is surely it. October 21st, 2000. Danny Williams, Mm -hmm. KO6, Mark Potter. Uh, Williams and Potter were squaring off for the British and Commonwealth heavyweight titles. Uh, The fight got off to an early and controversial start with a cold knockdown of Potter that that was really more of a rabbit punch with a low blow point deduction of Williams all before the end of round two. Um, By the time the fifth round was over, Williams had had three points deducted and was in danger of a DQ, but that wasn't the biggest handicap he was facing. The start of the third round, he threw a right hand and dislocated his right shoulder. For the rest of that round, his right arm was hanging just limply by his side, and he was an orthodox puncher, by the way. That was his power hand. Somehow, seemingly as a result of what his trainer Jim McDonald did in the corner, it popped back in for a couple of rounds, but he was clearly still affected by it. Then in round six, it popped right back out again and just hung there limply at his side. Potter, by this stage, miles up on the scorecards, went for the kill. Somehow, Williams uncorked a left uppercut that flattened Potter. Potter scrambled to his feet, but Williams dropped him twice more to secure a highly improbable win. Williams would, of course, go on to score another come-from-behind KO against a fellow called Mike Tyson, but this was one of the more remarkable feats of his career, or indeed of any career. Like I said, not the biggest fight in the world, but my goodness, if you want an illustration of a boxer overcoming adversity, this is it. Yeah, that is the other one that was high on my list that I could see a case for putting at number one. It's it's a good choice, and uh, yeah, I mean, you said it all. The, the amount of adversity he had to overcome and the way that he overcame it with the one-punch uppercut knockout fantastic stuff and uh whereas i would assume 99 percent of our listeners have seen your number two corrales castillo this is one that maybe some of our yep. uh, a decent chunk of our listeners have not seen and is worth looking up danny williams mark potter it is not least just to see just to see an arm just dangling pathetically and uselessly <laughs> right. and 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 to listen to the british commentary and including your know, former lightweight titleist jim watt just basically saying this fight needs to be stopped uh-huh. uh this is outrageous he's brave but how can he possibly go on and and then somehow scoring that highly improbable stoppage win uh, remarkable uh, yeah and it's a flashback to a, a time in boxing when before the internet before youtube whatever that i remember reading about this in the boxing news like a oh, week wow. or two after it happened the, the the actual print edition got to us and oh the 
amazing story of Danny Williams uh, with a dislocated uh, shoulder or arm knocking him out with an uppercut with the other arm, and it wasn't until a good bit after that that I finally got to see it. it my initial way of learning about this uh, incredible fight was simply reading about it. So uh, wow. that doesn't happen anymore. Indeed not. Um, all kinds of honorable mentions that one one could think about. Um you could make a case for Juan Manuel Marquez, uh, Manny Pacquiao for uh, Par- uh, Marquez was pretty busted up mm-hmm. uh, at that point before he scored that that big KO. Uh, the first Alexander Povetkin Dillian White fight. Uh, you could make a case for Anthony Joshua against Vladimir Klitschko. Um, mm-hmm. Asalino Freitas coming back from a couple of knockdowns uh, to beat Jorge Barrios. Uh, Miguel Cotto against Ricardo Torres. Kendall Holt against Ricardo Torres. Ricardo <laughs> Torres against Kendall Holt. Um, Jose Zapater against Ivan Baranchik. Um, maybe Kelly Pavlik against Jermaine Taylor. Maybe Carl Froch against Jermaine Taylor. Uh, and probably very, very, very many more that I have forgotten or haven't didn't think to include. <laughs> well, you mentioned several that I had forgotten and didn't think to include, but I have three more that you didn't name, including the one that I put at number five, although I didn't feel great about it, but... Chris Algieri against Ruslan Provodnikov. I had, I meant I had, to put that on the list. As okay, a, it, it's yeah. the reason I don't love it is that I didn't feel Chris Algieri deserved to win the fight. Uh, it was a bit of a controversial decision. He came all the way back to at least make it real close after being down. Was it yeah. twice in the first round with a basically a swollen shut eye? He definitely overcame the adversity. Whether he deserved to win, debatable. But poor Ruslan Provodnikov, uh, uh, yes. lo- losing twice uh, against fighters who uh, he basically had out of there. Um, and then the only other two that you didn't mention i think uh andy ruiz uh upsetting anthony joshua uh with just the fact that he had been down in that third round and uh looked like the fight was about to end in the expected fashion with a quick and easy joshua ko and then he overcame that and battled back and sort of an unusual choice perhaps but I think that it's worth mentioning Floyd Mayweather against Shane Mosley because very rare that we had to see Floyd deal with serious adversity in the ring. He didn't even officially quite get knocked down, but he came real close. He was kind of out on his feet for a second there. And the way that he came back in that fight and, you know, got through the the tough spot and then started stepping forward the next round and just dominated Shane Mosley the rest of the way. It was a decisive and impressive win in the face of, by Mayweather standards, extreme adversity. Yeah, there were two big, booming right hands that Shane had Floyd with, uh, in trouble with in, in mm-hmm. that second round. And and even by the end of the second, uh, Floyd had, had sort of begun to, to take the initiative again. Uh, yeah. I, I think that showed that you know, as as well as being highly skilled, Floyd Floyd was tough, mm-hmm. um, and, and he was fine in a fight. Remember when when Cotto, I think, bloodied his nose after like round eight. You went, you could look in the corner, and Floyd was just smiling, like, "All right, now we have a fight." <laughs> right. um, yeah, his toughness was sometimes uh, underappreciated, I think. Yeah. All right, that will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, Our thanks again, as always, to Brian Campbell for joining us. Uh, We'll be back next week with our post-fight thoughts on Showbox and a full preview of the following week's Showtime Championship Boxing card, headlined by Chris Colbert, uh, now against the always deadly TBD. Until then, be safe, be kind, and be well.